the scriptures are on the screen for you today, and uh, you guys can kind of thumb through your Bible and, and mark those if you'd like. Um, I won't be putting them on the screen, so hopefully that encourages you to like, you know, have your Bible there and, and ready to mark it up. I think that's a great thing. Um, go ahead and stand up, if you will. Once again, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, verses 26 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. This is the Word of God, starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the insignificant things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no human may boast before God. But it is due to Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, is, so that just as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Would you bow? Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you open our, our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word today. Lord, we, we submit ourselves to you and to your truth and ask that if there be anything in us, Lord God, that we need to lay at your feet, uh, that we need to lay aside to be more like you. Father, we pray that, uh, that you would bring our attention to that, Lord, and that we would do so. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So Paul, uh, in this passage, begins, uh, he, he's kind of continuing his arguments that we've been uh, working through over the past few weeks, and he's contrasting in this passage, again, uh, with the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, all right? And uh, last week, we talked all about the difference between the herald and the orator and, and how they approach truth and proclaiming truth. And he continues uh, to talk in, in those specifics about that contrast. Um, so drawing the contrast between the things the world values and places on a pedestal against the things of God, the things that God values, the things that God places a priority on, and the things that are eternal. And in the next passage, it's, it's very likely that the Apostle Paul's mind is returning to the folks at the church at Corinth. So he's thinking through the list of congregants there, and he's going down that list. So he's the Andersons, the, the Browns, the Coopers, and he's thinking through these different families, these different people at the church. And he starts by reminding them to consider the cost that they were told would come when they heard the Lord Jesus call their name. Uh, but also, he was reminding them why God called them. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Now, Paul often used the word calling when he was referring uh, to their first surrendering to Christ's lordship. And we, we read uh, in, in the uh, book of Revelation this morning, the, the letter to the church of Ephesus, he said, remember your early love, like your first love, that that love that you had in the beginning. And that's what Paul's reminding them of. Consider your calling. Consider the cost when you were called. Okay, because um, he says, quote, There were not many wise according to the flesh, 
not many mighty and not many noble. And he's confirming to them that there really were none among them at that time who were wealthy, who were famous, who were prestigious, and so on. So in their society, in their culture, um, it wasn't like that when God was choosing teams uh, or who would be working for him that he chose the way we chose when we choose teams in basketball or, or dodgeball or whatever out on the playground when we were kids. Y'all remember that? Because I have very traumatic experiences from those days. But um, uh, Paul was saying God did not choose you and call you because of what you had to offer uh, or by means of worldly wealth or wisdom or talent. None of that mattered to God when he called you out. And Paul is pointing out, in fact, that when you were called, you were wicked, you were rebellious, and he called you in spite of your failings, not because somehow you had proven yourself worthy of his call. And that's important to understand. In addition, if they had been wealthy or prestigious or powerful before they knew Christ, uh, they certainly weren't anymore after they had accepted Christ and made him their Lord. Uh, for them, in their culture, it meant giving up everything. It meant total abandon. And uh, it's so different than, than what we know today. We actually enjoy a great deal of peace and prosperity in, in uh, the, the country we live in and the lifestyle that we uh, are afforded by God. It's a blessing, but it, it hasn't always been that way for people throughout human history. As a matter of fact, if you were to put on the scales uh, good experiences versus bad experiences for those who call themselves Christians, it would far outweigh in those who were being persecuted and martyred and, and facing all kinds of trial and tribulation for their faith. And so the point I'm making here is that those things often as well, um, they can become roadblocks to people coming to faith. Uh, when you have everything you need in your own mind, when you're smart enough or intellectual enough um, in your own mind, then you, you tend to uh, push back against the things of God. And so the very things that are an advantage in the world's eyes are the very same thing that can be a disadvantage to those who are being called or led by the Holy Spirit and when it comes to seeing their need for Jesus. Do you all understand that? Every once in a while, if you get it, you can throw out an amen that just lets me know that uh, you're still with me and you're not uh, falling asleep out there. So when we rely on ourselves, on our own wealth, on our own talent, our own wisdom, uh, it's so very easy for the heart to be deceived into believing that our self-reliance actually extends into our, our spirituality as well. So if we can take care of ourselves physically and we focus on the here and now and, and we're doing great then it often causes people to just totally ignore the spiritual and totally ignore that they need God and that at any moment their life could end just like the rich man and Lazarus, right? Uh, the, the rich man be uh, begged to, for God uh, or for Abraham to send someone back to tell his, to tell his uh, brothers, his family. Well, our lives can end so quickly and, and that's the whole point is if we ignore what God requires spiritually, then we can be left at the end and, and be in a dire situation spiritually. Um, we can believe in this life that we can do it on our own merit and by our own works or our intellect or our logic. We can easily, as I said, dismiss the spiritual needs altogether. And this is the idea that Paul is touching on here. He's saying that God isn't looking to choose from among those whom the world considers the all-stars, 
to do His work. He doesn't go out there and pick the best of the best, okay, by the world's standards, but rather, rather those who realize their fallen state, those who realize their great need for Him, and those who humble themselves like children and run to the Father. That word humble actually means, and we'll cover this in a few minutes as well, to humiliate yourself, to humble yourself, humiliate yourself. Uh, so I want to make this point with another couple texts in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Um, a little background context here. Jesus had just rebuked the unrepentant cities for not turning to Him. And they had seen miracles performed by Jesus. We just talked about miracles recently. Um, if your thinking is that uh, miracles are an evangelical tool, and if someone sees miracles, then automatically their minds will be blown and they'll put their faith in Christ, then you're thinking about miracles all wrong. We see that in this passage here because these cities had seen more miracles than any, anyone else, and yet they didn't believe. And that's what's happening here. Okay, They had seen many miracles performed, uh, just as we learned a few weeks back that the Jews came to expect, that if you want me to listen to you, you better show me signs and wonders, right? And, uh, and that was because they believed that those miracles were the stamp of approval by God, saying, this is my man. This is, this is my man and my message if they could perform these signs, miracles, and wonders. And of course, we learned a few weeks back that Jesus was the God-man. He was the messenger, okay? Uh, and so uh, with all of that, they had not yet repented. Even in the face of Christ performing so many miracles, their eyes were still blinded to why Jesus came. So Jesus prays out loud, thanking the Father for His sovereign hand and those who hear and obey the voice of God and those who hear the message and choose to reject it. So look what happens and what he likens uh, both groups to here in Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So Jesus called those who had their eyes opened, he called them infants, babies. Now turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom? So Jesus, He is about to give them an object lesson. Okay? Uh, he's about to make a point with them. Verse 2, So He called a child to Himself and set the child among them. And He said, Truly I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever will humble himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus isn't talking about literal children here. He makes it clear you must become like children, like the infant. You must uh, bow before him in humility. And again, that word humble means to make or bring low to humble yourself, or to humiliate yourself. So think of it in the terms of if a grown man was walking around in diapers and carrying a bottle. There's a, there's a certain amount of humiliation that would go along with that. Well, that's spiritually what he's talking about, is you have to become like an infant in order to see your need and then rely completely on the Father. So uh, let me draw a comparison and, and try to clarify 
this for you a little more. So if, if, uh, if you take a U.S. Marine who's in the special forces and uh, you drop them way up in the mountains with nothing, okay, um, what would be the outcome? Well, they would use their training, their survival skill, their knowledge of how to read their surroundings, how to find food and water, and they would very likely, because of their training, they would survive on their own. So in the spiritual sense, this would be a picture of someone who is relying on their own wisdom, their own intellect to survive in uh, dire spiritual circumstances. By their own works, they believe that they can save themselves. You all got that? So now if you took an infant or even a child of five or a child of 10 years old and you did the exact same thing, you, you took them up in the mountains and you just dropped them off in the middle of nowhere in the mountains, they would not last long. They would not have food or water and wouldn't really know how to find it. It's likely they would try to eat something they're not supposed to eat. Uh, they would be exposed to the elements. They would be vulnerable to predators and they would practically have no chance at all. And this is the reality that Christ is pointing to here. If you want to know what it means to follow me, you must realize that you do not have the capability spiritually to do anything on your own. You're doomed. That's the point. Show me your arsenal, your supplies, your survival kit, the tools that you think will allow you to thrive on your own spiritually, and I'll show you worthless, silly toys of the world. You must become like a helpless infant, a child with no tools at all, only your childlike faith. Only your faith can you bring to the table, and it doesn't end there. From that point on, you must rely upon Jesus to sustain you every single day if you want to survive spiritually, all right? Like a mother nursing her infant, we rely on the milk of the Word when we come to Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2, he actually uses this terminology so that we can better understand. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. They have no place in the life of the believer. And like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So as we rely upon Him, we grow in Him, we dig deeper, we drink that milk, and eventually we're, we move on to the meat of the Word, but we also dig deeper in this, this tool chest, if you will, the survival kit that God's given us, spirit, a spiritual survival kit. And let me uh, turn to 2 Peter 1, 3-4. through 4. 2 Peter 1, 3-4. through 4. This is what I call the, the, the divine survival kit, the spiritual survival kit, uh, starting in verse 3. For His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So His divine power has granted to you everything you need, everything you need for life and godliness. Look, through the true knowledge of Him, when you truly know Him, he provides you everything you need to make it in any circumstance you might face in this world. It says, who called us by his own glory and excellence. So we have everything we need for life and godliness because it has been made available to us by God himself. How? By knowing him. Well, how do we get to know him intimately? 
We drink the pure milk of the Word. We eat the meat of the Word. It's His Word. And then verse 4, through these uh, gifts or promises, he's, or, yeah, gifts, He's granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them, by them, by the promises of God, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That means if you want to take part and see the world the way He sees the world and take part in the divine nature, you have to know the Word of God. You have to hold on to those divine promises. And then look what it says. And you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. So we all have lust. We all have a lust for the world. We all want the things of the world, every single one of us, and we wrestle with that daily. Well, it's giving us really a a success uh, plan here. If we want to be successful and not be corrupted by the world, uh, then this is what we need to do. It, It lines it out for us. Your nature will tell you that you have all you need and you can do everything you need to do in this life on your own. Your nature tells you that you can handle any situation uh, write a few self-help books and some self-discipline, and we can, we can pretty much accomplish anything. Um, if I just learn this, or if I can just achieve my next goal, I can conquer anything that gets in my way. But God says there's only one way to escape the corruption of this world. And if you don't want to be corrupted by the world... You must become a partaker of His divine nature by holding to His precious and magnificent promises. So hold to the truth of His Word and you will become a partaker of His divine nature and therefore you will be safe from worldly corruption. None of us are safe, even as believers, if we allow our minds to drift into worldly things. If we begin to love the world and the things in the world, we we don't want to be caught up in that. So... Um, Just making the initial decision to follow Christ alone means that you have to humiliate yourself in the world's eyes and you have to become like a child. So again, Paul tells the church at Corinth in verse 26 in our main passage up there, 1 Corinthians. He says, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God did not pick from the best of the best among you. So he's making that point. And consider in the world's eyes, this whole thing got started by a Jewish carpenter and his followers were uneducated fishermen. Um, The Jews didn't understand and they rejected him. The Gentiles thought it was foolish and they helped kill him. It's this incredible foolishness of the cross that's put forth that just seems absolutely unbelievable. And yet you have to humiliate yourself Humble yourself to believe it. And that's what he's talking about. Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And God has chosen the insignificant things of the world and the despised. Now that word despised is actually uh, an accusative verb. It's like, it's like accusing someone of something. So despised. And, and it means to set at naught. That sounds like King James, but basically you're nothing, okay? Uh, It means to ignore or to despise. So boiled down, here's what it actually means, that word despise. It means you will be ignored as if you do not even exist. You will be ignored 
as if you do not even exist. You are nothing. You are insignificant in the eyes of those who this world says really matter. You are just empty space. In their Greek culture, the idea of being was of utmost importance. They constantly questioned their philosophy was built on the foundation of this question. We hear Hamlet in Hamlet, uh, he says, to be or not to be, that is the question. He's pondering life. To be or not to be, the idea of being. And Paul is driving home this point to the Corinthian church using a play on words, something that they would already understand. The goal is not to be something in the world's eyes. To them, you don't even deserve the air you breathe. But the goal is to be in God's eyes. You need to be something in His eyes. Called out for the highest purpose of all, for God's purpose. So the end of verse 28, Paul is speaking from the world's perspective. God has chosen the things that are not, the things that don't even exist, the things the world places no value in whatsoever, so that He may nullify or void the things that are. He will use those worthless things to upend to turn upside down, to topple the things that the world itself puts all their value in. Because honestly, that's all they've got, right? If you've got no expectation, if all you believe is we live and collect toys and then we die, and it's donezo, like, you know, it's just darkness, and you've got nothing to look forward to. But we do, we look beyond that, and we know that true reality is beyond the grave, Okay? And this goes for you too. He has called you. He will use you for His high purpose. And He will activate you. I I think of a little toy that you have to turn on. Those little like robot toys. Or when I was a kid, I had stompers. I'm probably telling my age, but I had these little stompers uh, that you'd turn on and they would just drive over all the obstacles. So He will activate you. He will set you in motion. He will equip you with everything that you need, leaving nothing in the end for you to brag about yourself. That's the whole point. So verse 29, so that no human may boast before God, but it is due Him. In other words, it's on Him. It's all Him that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it's all from Him and it's all for Him. Do you understand? Last week I was having a conversation with a good friend and the question he posed to me was, what does it actually mean to die to self? What does it mean to die to self? Okay? And because I use that terminology a lot, that's a, a fair question. I shouldn't be saying things if, if people don't know what I'm even talking about, if they don't know what that means. Well, we need to have a solid understanding of that. What we're talking about today is a really good foundation that's laid uh, to build that understanding upon of what it means to die to self. We must go to Him and humble ourselves as an infant or a child and lay down everything and submit fully to Him. We lay everything down for Him in order not to be, okay? To cease to exist in in and of ourselves. And in the world's eyes, that's what it looks like. In order that we would exchange that for being something of value in God's eyes. Does that make sense? So in exchange of His divine nature, Jesus the Christ 
lives through us, leaving behind one identity that it's valued in the estimation of the world, laying that aside, Michael is gone, dead and buried. He was crucified with Christ. And now I live for completely different reasons altogether. And that new identity that I take up, the promise is you're going to face trial, tribulation. Uh, you're going to likely be persecuted and you're going to be hated. Sounds great. Sign me up, right? That's why it means you have to die to self. And look how Paul puts it to the church at Galatia in Galatians 2, 20 through 21. Galatians 2, 20 through 21. I love this passage of Scripture. It's, it's so powerful. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. So Paul's gone, dead and buried. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's all in my faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. For if righteousness comes, um, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let me explain that. He died and I die with him so that he can live through me. Everything I do, all the work I accomplish, all that I have, all my worldly possessions, it's his and it's for him. So that's the question. No matter how much you have or how little you have in life, it's all His. That's why Paul could say, and, and this is a great example, he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Whether I have a lot or have a little, it doesn't matter. Throw, it, throw the world at me. Give me whatever you got. I'll take it all because I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And that's what it means to die to self is... No matter where you send me, Lord, no matter what I have to go through, I trust you no matter what. If I have everything that I could possibly imagine in worldly possessions, or if all I have left like Job is the shirt on my back and I lose everything, though he slay me, I will trust him. So the question is, though, when we get to that point, you would not dare think that you had anything to do with your salvation that you could do something, that, that it were possible in any way for your work to earn your way to heaven or to, to make you worthy before God. And what he's saying when he says Christ died needlessly, he's saying if you could do that, if you could do anything to save yourself, then why in the world would God send Jesus to die a brutal death on the cross and why would He take man's sin upon Himself? If that wasn't necessary, then why did Christ even come? If I can work my way to heaven. Do you understand how important that is? We really have to understand that. It's a major tenet of the faith, is understanding that it's by faith alone and grace alone we're saved by the finished work of Christ alone. Alright? So He says you are, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we're going to run through this as such a theologically rich passage here of Scripture. But I want to keep building this, this idea of what it means. He says, um, again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, And you were dead in your offenses and sin. You were dead in your offenses and sins. Now, before we move on here, it's important that at this point I, I get this across because you can read right over this and just completely... Uh, not consider the implications of what it means here. 
There are those who would say that salvation is what he does and what I do, all right? So that he's, he offers it to me and then I, and then, for instance, uh, I, I hear people say, it's like this, I was drowning and Jesus was my life preserver and God threw out the life preserver and I saw it and I reached out and I grabbed it and I held on to that life preserver and I was saved and that was a miracle, okay? I've heard this all my life. There's only one issue with that scenario. That's not what Scripture says here. Dead men can't reach out. It says you were dead. Dead men don't grab a hold of anything. Dead men can't see, and dead men have no hope at all. So it says you were dead. So here's a more accurate scenario. Your lifeless body was already drowned. You were dead in your sins. It was sinking to the depths of the sea in total darkness, hopeless. And here's the miracle, that while you were sinking lifeless, the Holy Spirit of God breathed the breath of life in you and He opened your eyes. In His power, He regenerated you. He raised you up from the darkness and He set your feet firmly on solid ground. It's all Him. You didn't have to swim. You didn't have to reach. You didn't have to do anything. He did it for you. He called you out. He breathed uh, His breath in you and He opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel. And that's the miracle of His grace. So let's start again in verse 1 with that in mind and let's read through this. You were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among, among them we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by, uh, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest, okay? So there was nothing about you. We were all the same. We were all in that same boat. There was nothing about you in that former fallen condition that made you worthy of His choosing. Verse 4, But God, listen, but God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He had loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the boundless riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So He's infinitely merciful, and His love is infinite, and He offers His grace so undeserving to us through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that you would be a holy and divine object lesson to all of creation. He chooses you and says, I will show my glory through Brett or I will show my glory through Cassie. He chose you and wants to show his glory through you. And, and so bearing witness in yourself of all God's infinite attributes and what he's done in your life for God's glory alone, you become that object lesson Oh, uh, forever and ever and ever and ever. So once you accept Christ, once He calls you out and, and you submit your life to Him and make Him your Lord, once that happens, then you become this divine object lesson that He gets to point to and say, consider my servant. Look at how they have glorified me and given themselves to me. Look at the, the mighty works they've allowed me to do through them. 
That's, that's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christian. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And I don't care what you say, anytime you say a, a, a gift is a gift, if there's any kind of exchange at all, it ceases to be a gift, right? I'm giving away those peppers back there. You take those peppers and I come to your house this week and say that'll be $5. That's an exchange. That's commerce. That is not a gift. Do you all understand? So he, he's clarifying it's the gift of God and not the result of works so that no one will boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So now we can look at our main passage again, and I want to point out a few more things before we close. So among the many tools in the spiritual survival kit that God has given us, this passage names a few of them, and they're so very important. Verse 30, it says, But it is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So Christ followers are given wisdom of God to replace their own worldly wisdom. Those who are truly wise are wise because they see beyond the perspective of this world. They see beyond all the silliness. You see with eternity in your heart. You look at the world around you and it grieves you. You do not take part in it. It grieves you when you see the tragedy of people's lives, the hopelessness, and them searching around in the darkness for truth, for anything of substance. And you see people's lives falling apart around you. You, you see that. And the wisdom of God is that I see from His perspective now. Through the study of God's Word, we begin to see the world the way God sees the world. We begin to see people the way He sees them, and we see our enemies, the spiritual enemies, the way God sees them. We become privy to all the devices of men, the traps of men that will lead people astray, and all of the devices that the spiritual forces set out in front of us. We know. We know when we're being tempted. We know that the Spirit of God tells us to watch out when there's something in front of us that we know could bring us down. They could destroy us. They could bring dishonor to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we neglect careful study, we will remain babies in our wisdom and just know enough to be dangerous. And I'm afraid that there are so many believers out there today that just barely know anything at all. They've accepted Christ. They've made the decision to follow Him, but then they just kind of stay those spiritual fat babies, right? They don't ever grow at all. And... What's really sad is that in their deception, they deceive and lead other people astray as well. Not even purposefully meaning to, it's just what happens. But if you see from his perspective, you will not be fooled by the traps that both mankind and the world and the devil puts in front of you. You'll see it for what it is. And the only time you will fall for it is when you want to fall for it, when you actually grab a hold of that sinful lust and decide, oh, forget about the consequences, I want to do what I want to do. And sometimes that happens and we lapse. Um, but Jesus spells it out for us in, in John 8, 31 and 32. 
John 8, 31 and 32, the words of Jesus once again. So simple. So simple. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So the wisdom you receive from Jesus is both instantaneous in part, and then a progression of wisdom as you abide, as you study and and ingest, eat the Word of God, the bread of life. And more and more freedom comes along with that. The more you get in His Word, the more you see from His perspective, the more freedom you will have in your life. And you look around and all the things that everybody else is bothered by, that they're stressed out about and freaking out about, you're like, that's not a big deal to me. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. You just desire with all of your heart for people to know God in that way, and you know the answer's right in front of you. It's God's Word. But we are so bad about seeking fulfillment and life in the broken toys of this world. When we place our trust in Jesus and we make Him our Lord, it's amazing. Um, the second thing He offers us is we receive righteousness. We receive His righteousness. Uh, we are made right with God. We are no longer sinful. We are sinless. All right? And uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. And when it says He became sin, it means He became a sin offering. And there are references to the Old Testament that you can look up and see that a, that a sin offering was holy. Um, but He became a sin offering on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. So when you accept Christ and you gain the world's perspective and He gives you His righteousness, you become the righteousness of God Himself. You want to know that God is righteous? Look at what He's doing among His saints. Look at the transformed lives. Look at how they're completely different than they used to be. We become the righteousness of God in Christ. The fancy word for this is justification. And there's a saying that helps you remember this. Justification is just as if I justified, just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd never sinned. You're both washed clean of all your past sin. And then he wraps you, Christ wraps you in his righteousness like a robe, wraps it around you. And when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see any sin. All he sees is that you're wearing the robe of his son, that you belong to Christ. That's what he sees. Is that not unbelievable? It's incredible. So the third, the believers receive sanctification. In Christ, we're set apart and we're declared holy. He seated us in his own mind. He seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. We're already elevated to that place because of Christ's righteousness. So we're set apart and declared holy. Now because we're still present in this fallen world and we've yet to be fully changed, and that's coming in the future, that's called glorification, okay? We're still susceptible, as I said before, to lapsing into our old nature, and that's why we need to dive into God's Word and, and know Him, truly know Him every single day. But the good news is that we grow and mature in Christ. Our sin becomes less and less uh, frequent in our lives because God's Word and seeing from His perspective becomes more and more powerful. It takes up more and more 
of the space in our heart and mind, and sin just kind of begins to fade away. We'll never be sinless until we're glorified, until we stand before Him, and when we see Him, we shall be like Him. But I believe the believer can get very, very, uh, very, very godly and very, very close in, in the way that we don't fall, in, especially into disgusting, rampant sin of the world. The believer has no place in that. But you're still going to stumble every once in a while and, and get angry or, or, or be jealous. There's going to be things that we deal with as a believer because we're still fallen and we're still human. But in His eyes, we're wrapped in His robe of righteousness and we're seated in the heavenlies, so we should live like it. We should set ourselves apart and honor Him in every way we can. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that we are being transformed into His image. And Ephesians 2.10 says that our new nature is created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've already read that. So um, it's so important to understand that yes, works are a part of the believer's life, okay? But here's the thing. Our works are the fruit of our sanctification. They are not the root of our salvation, Our works are the fruit of the sanctification and not the root of our salvation. How many of you guys have ever been walking by a tree, a fruit tree, and you hear it going like that, trying to grow fruit? Does a tree have to strive and try really hard to grow fruit? All it needs is to be rooted in the proper soil and have a water source. And it just stands there and produces fruit. That's the picture of the believer. He will be like a tree planted by rivers of water bearing fruit in his season. It's like you don't have to strive and work hard. Plant yourself in Christ. Plant yourself in the Word. You don't have to strive and work so hard. But you'll have peace. You'll rest in Him and He'll do His work through you. Isn't that a pretty picture? Amen. And lastly, the believer is given redemption. To redeem something in their culture meant to buy it back something that had been lost, to find it again. And so you were headed for a judgment day, condemned and judged already because you were in darkness and you loved it. Jesus said people in darkness because they love the darkness more than the light. That was all of us, formerly. You were in the possession of sin and death, okay? It owned you and you were held within the grip of sin and death. But God in His great mercy pulled you from the clutches of sin and death, and now you are His own possession. He bought you back. He bought you back. Sin and death owned you, and He was the victor over sin and death, and He bought you back and redeemed you. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. In other words, things of this world could not and did not save you, not by silver or gold or anything like that, were you redeemed, but, verse 19, with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless with the blood of Christ. You were taken in the grip of the one who had the nail scars in his hands. And he now holds you in his hands. And there is nothing that can take you out of his hands. Look at Romans 8, 38 and 39. Romans 8, 38 and 39, we're almost done here. Hang with me just a couple more minutes. It says, for I am convinced, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, 
nor things present right now in our day and time, nor things to come, even in the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an incredible promise. Hold on to that. And that just about covers it all, doesn't it? Can you throw anything in that grouping of, of, of words and, and possibilities? I can't. So my dear friends, we bring nothing to the table. We need to know that. We bring nothing to the table. It's all on Him, and it's all for His glory. And in Him, we have a glorious future. In this life, no matter what it brings, and when we step out of this life into eternity, and we stand before our Savior. We die and He lives through us. And with that, we understand fully 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31, when He says, Just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, because dead men can't boast. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.